2: He's talking about a group of Jews in the day known as Judaizers, and Judaizers were those who were Jewish believers in Jesus, but who believed that salvation was not just believing in Jesus alone, but it was also believing in Jesus and doing good works. And whenever you add anything to the simplicity of the message that Jesus Christ died for all and whoever puts their faith in Jesus shall be saved. Whenever you add anything to that, you've corrupted the message of the gospel.
0: The mistake
1: of the Judaizers is one that's still common in today's church. To be accepted by many congregations, you must look a certain way, follow a set of rules, or subscribe to a very specific interpretation of Scripture. If you step outside of that, you may experience ridicule or even be kicked out of the church. While having doctrine isn't wrong in and of itself, Pastor Gary will remind us in today's message, the only belief required to be a part of this family is accepting Jesus as your Savior. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: Among the things mentioned in chapter 2 and 3 are letters to seven churches. And as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there are three important elements as we understand these seven churches and the letters that are written to these seven churches. The first one is that each church is literal in existence. These were literal churches, actual churches that existed in the first century, located in what is today on a map modern Turkey. And each of these letters has spiritual relevance. As, as we read through these letters that Jesus dictates uh, and, and John writes down, and these are intended for the, the churches that are mentioned here, they have spiritual significance. Uh, the Lord is going to point out some things that they're doing well. He's going to also, in most cases, in five out of the seven cases, he's going to rebuke them for things that they're not doing well. And as we read through it, I don't want you to read those things and think, well, that only applied to those literal churches in the first century. We need to have spiritual eyes and ears to see and to hear those same things that the Lord might be speaking to us today, either commending us for things spiritually or or rebuking us for things spiritually. So we need to take those things to heart. And then thirdly, there's there's an historical significance to each of these churches because each of these churches, when you line them up, these seven churches uh, communicate to us seven different time periods in church history that have either occurred or are occurring or shall occur. So it's as if between chapters two and three, the Lord has given us a timeline of church history leading up to and including the second coming of Christ. And so we're going to look at it from that standpoint. Now, again, just to orient ourselves on a map, when we talk about these seven churches, we're talking about seven churches that are just below the Black Sea in what was called Asia Minor, what is today Turkey. And we're talking about just this small little block of area where these seven churches were located. And here are these seven churches. And as as we go through chapters two and three, it goes in a clockwise direction, starting with Ephesus and moving up to Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and the last letter is the letter to Laodicea. So last time we got through the letter to the church at Ephesus, and just by way of summary of those things, Here again, the church of Ephesus is seen as, when we look at the timeline of church history, the church of Ephesus, a literal church, but it represents in historical church history, the apostolic church. And the apostolic church can be dated from around 33 AD, which is when Pentecost started. Jesus ascends back into heaven. The Holy Spirit falls in Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost is really the birth of the church. We now take the ministry and the mantle that Christ has given and we now represent him as ambassadors in the world and we have the high privilege of explaining to people the good news of the gospel, leading people to Christ. That's when the church was born. That started 33 AD and on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the apostolic age ended around AD 100 when the last of the apostles, this particular apostle, John, who was inspired to write Revelation basically died at about that age. He was in his upper 90s to around 100 when he died. And so it's the end of the first century church, the end of the apostolic age. So that's what Ephesus represents. And we talked last time about the elements in the letter to the church of Ephesus. And here are those elements. So in each of these letters, we're going to see the same thing. We're going to see Jesus' title. We're going to see a commendation that he gives. We're going to see a complaint that he mentions in most cases. And we're going to see a reward that he also indicates. And so for the church of Ephesus, his title was him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And we talked about how the seven golden lampstands uh, are the church at the end of chapter 1. He he says it just that plainly. Uh, The last verse of chapter 1, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So it's Jesus' way of saying, I walk among the church, that even though I'm not visible, I, by my spirit, walk among the churches. He commends the church of Ephesus for their hardworking, persevering, uh, attitude and, and the way that they discerned false doctrines, in particular the, Nicol- the uh, Nicolaitans, and we'll talk more about them because they come up in tonight's study too. But he complains that they've left their first love. Uh, he, he complains about how they, they don't really love him the way that they did at first. And so again, as I mentioned last week, they didn't lose their first love. They left him. Okay, there's a big difference They left him. It was an act of the will. They decided they didn't want to follow him any longer. But Jesus, uh, in his reward to them, to those who overcome, he said that they will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And we hadn't heard about the tree of life since Genesis chapter 2, but it reappears at the end of uh, Revelation, in Revelation 22, and it is a promise to those who overcome that they shall partake of the tree of life. So that's where we ended here in Revelation chapter 2 at the end of verse 7. And so let's pick up reading now at verse 8. If you notice in your Bibles, uh, these are uh, separated by subtitles. We come now to the church of Smyrna in verse 8. And so again on the map, we're moving now uh, in a clockwise direction north. And this is what it says in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So this next church here is the Church of Smyrna, and the Church of Smyrna on the timeline of church history represents the suffering church, and the dates of this time period in church history are roughly 100 AD, which was the end of the Apostolic Age, that's what closed out the Church of Ephesus, to around 312 AD when Constantine made Christianity a state religion. And so let me talk about this first before we dive into uh, this, this letter here that Jesus dictates. What we know about the city of Smyrna, because I, I want to frame these things in terms of a little bit of the history of the city and the church itself, and then the spiritual aspect of what Jesus is communicating here through these letters. What we know of Smyrna ha- is not found in the Bible. It is found in, in history. Smyrna is mentioned only in the uh, first two chapters of the book of Revelation, Smyrna was founded about three centuries before Christ by Alexander the Great. It's located approximately 35 miles north of Ephesus, the last city that we looked at here, and it was along the trade route from Persia to Rome. And because of that, it was a major commercial city back in the day in Asia Minor. It was a seaport city also. It was second only to Ephesus in terms of its wealth. And uh, today, Smyrna uh, survives as a city called Izmir in Turkey, Izmir, Turkey, with a population of about 250,000 people. So today, it's a pretty populous city in Turkey. Now, Smyrna received its name from a particular product that was one of its greatest commodities back in the day, and you hear it reflected in its name, Smyrna, Smyrna, myrrh. So, myrrh was the important commodity of this city back in that day. Myrrh was a gum resin that was derived from a shrub that was indigenous to that particular region there in Asia Minor. The Bible mentions myrrh in different places and it records three particular uses for myrrh. It was a very fragrant material that. Would only, this is interesting because it has to do with the context of the story. Myrrh would only really be fragrant when it was crushed. When it was crushed. And the Bible speaks of three particular uses for myrrh. Number one, as an ingredient in perfume. It's mentioned in Psalm 45, verse 8, as an ingredient in perfume. I mean, all this essential oil stuff, it was way back before all of that, okay? Way before doTERRA, all right? It was all here in the Bible first. It was also one of the ingredients of holy anointing oil for the priests when they would anoint the priests for service in Exodus chapter 30, verse 23. And thirdly, and probably the most familiar, it was an element used in embalming the dead. And the Bible tells us in John nineteen thirty-nine that Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe to the tomb of Jesus to embalm him, to basically use as a rubbing um, ointment to embalm the dead. And so Nicodemus, it says in John 19, 39, brought about a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloe to embalm, to anoint uh, the body of Jesus in his burial. Now, The most notable Christian, going back to church history during this particular time period, 100 to 312 A.D., the most notable Christian who was martyred in Smyrna during this time was a guy historically by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, and he was burned at the stake in his 90s for his faith. That's the reason he was uh, 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 martyred. And as he was uh, being burned at the stake, Polycarp declared, quote, for over 80 years, I have served my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not once has he denied me, and I shall not deny him. End quote. Now, it is interesting to note and encouraging to note that the letter to the Church of Smyrna is only one of two letters. The other one is Philadelphia, where Jesus has no complaint. He has no complaint about them. And so here is, here is the summary of what we just read, and then I'll come back and and actually dig out the whole letter. But here's the summary. Jesus' title is given to us here as the first and the last who was dead and came to life. He commends the church of Smyrna because they were afflicted, they were poor, they were persecuted, he says, yet they were faithful and rich in the Lord. We'll talk about that in a little bit. As I said, he has no complaint, and he offers them a reward, the crown of life, and he says about them that they will be unhurt by the second death. Now, church historians tell us that it was during this time period when the church suffered tremendous martyrdom, first century as well. It started in the first century under Nero in the 60s AD. Nero would fiddle on his balcony as emperor of Rome, while Christians were dipped in tar and set as human torches in his backyard. So it started under Nero in the 60s AD, but it continued into the 2nd century, which is what we're talking about here, in the 100s, 200s, and the early 300s AD. Six million Christians, estimated, were killed for their faith during this particular time period. So when we talk about the Church of Smyrna, again, it was a literal church, but it paints a picture, it's a type of... The whole period of time that the church particularly suffered under tremendous persecution because there was such tremendous persecution during this time Church historians say this is where the sign of the fish came to be Now the sign of the fish as many of you have seen uh, basically is an upper arc And a lower arc and it makes the symbol of a fish and christians would identify themselves secretively to one another by taking their foot in the sand or the dirt when they would meet someone as a way to try to figure out you a christian because we can't really talk about it else we're going to be killed during this time period so one person would talk and take his foot or her foot and make the upper arc like of the fish and if you were a christian you would take your foot and you would make the lower arc and then the two of you would know oh you're a christian too it was the sign of the fish And it became a sign for Christianity, and still is today. When the Romans discovered the secret sign, then the early church abandoned the sign of the fish and went to different Greek letters, ichthos, for fish, and the ichthos letters stood for Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So each of those letters, ichthos, I-X-T-H-O-S, stood for that saying, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Because so many Christians were being killed for their faith, it's no wonder that Jesus has no complaint about them, because instead of getting into trouble, they were spending their time praying or being martyred. And so as a word of encouragement, he has nothing bad to say about this church. They were the persecuted church. They were the suffering church. And so here, look again at this letter in verse 8. Again, Jesus dictates this letter to the angel of the church. We talked about this. Angel in the Greek is agalos. Agalos does not only mean spiritual beings in the heavenly realms. It can also just simply mean messenger. Jesus called John the Baptist in the original Greek language of Matthew 11, verse 10. Jesus called John the Baptist agalos, meaning messenger, because this is a reference to the pastor of the church and this letter is dictated here to the church of Smyrna. Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last who was dead and came to life. He's our resurrected Lord. God, uh, uh, Jesus says there in verse 9, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty. And the word there for poverty in the Greek is not just uh, poor, but they were impoverished. They were destitute. And you have to remember you're you're a Jew in, in the first, second century, and you're a believer in Jesus. You have now been cut off from your family. Uh, they've held a funeral for you. Your livelihood now has gone down the tank because nobody's going to buy from you. And so you were not only persecuted physically, but you were also shunned materially and in every way. And so it resulted in extreme poverty. These people were impoverished. But Jesus adds here, he says, it's a parenthetical comment, but you are rich. You're rich. You know, they might have been materially poor, but they were spiritually rich. And the same is true for us. It doesn't matter what's in your bank account. Because true wealth is being rich in Christ. That, that's true value, is being rich in Christ, because you might lose everything materially. It's okay. You're still wealthy in the Lord. You're still rich in Christ. And Paul, throughout his letters, spoke of different kinds of spiritual riches that we have in the Lord. For example, he talked about the riches of his kindness in Romans 2, verse 4. Paul wrote about the riches of his glory in Romans 9, verse 3. He talked about the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God in Romans 11.33. He talked about the riches of God's grace in Ephesians 1.7. He mentions the riches of his glorious inheritance in Ephesians 1.18. And in general, he talked about the unsearchable riches of Christ in Ephesians 3 and verse 8. And so we're all rich in the Lord. And so Jesus was reminding the people there in Smyrna, hey, you, you might be you know, materially impoverished, but but with me, you have everything that you need. You are rich in the Lord. And so he goes on to say there, but he says, I know the blasphemy, circle that word, of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, he's talking about a group of Jews in the day known as Judaizers. And Judaizers were those who were Jewish believers in Jesus, but who believed That salvation was not just believing in Jesus alone, but it was also believing in Jesus and doing good works. And whenever you add anything to the simplicity of the message that Jesus Christ died for all and whoever puts their faith in Jesus shall be saved. Whenever you add anything to that, you've corrupted the message of the gospel. And you've now taken it from a grace-oriented salvation to a man's works-oriented effort. And the Judaizers were doing that. And Jesus said there, it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. That's what he calls it. It's blasphemy because those who say that they're Jews and they're not, they're Judaizers. But, but, they're, but they're not really representing the, the message of the gospel. They're not really mes- uh, representing grace. Uh, they're, they're elevating works over grace. And he says, therefore, it's like it's the synagogue of Satan because Satan inspires the things that are in conflict with the message of the gospel. Every heretical teaching, every uh, uh, cultic a heretical teaching, is really, at the end of the day, it's inspired by Satan. Because Satan wants none to be saved. He doesn't want you to come to the, to the knowledge of, of salvation through faith in Jesus. So, so he corrupts that message in every way that he can. And that's why Jesus said it's blasphemous, and it's of the synagogue of Satan. He says in verse 10, do not fear any of those things which, are about, uh, which you are about to suffer. Again, this is the suffering church. Myrrh, it's, it's appropriate here because myrrh only was fragrant when it was crushed. And he says, indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and that you will have tribulation at small t. It's not the great tribulation yet. For 10 days. Now, what is the 10 days deal? Most Bible scholars believe that it is simply a, a, an allegorical statement for the 10 worst Roman Empire uh, Roman emperors. Ten days, meaning the ten worst Roman emperors. And I'll just read you the list real quickly, quicker than you can take notes. But here's some of the things that they did. So it probably refers to, in this order, these are the Roman emperors in this order, Nero, 64 to 68 AD. He burned Rome and he blamed Christians. He crucified and threw Christians into pits with wild animals. He executed Paul and Peter. And as I mentioned, he made Christians into human torches. The second emperor was Domitian, 90 to 96 AD. He killed thousands in Rome, and he banished John, this John, to the island of Patmos. Next to him was Trajan, 104 to 117 AD. He outlawed Christianity. He burned Ignatius at the stake. After him was Marcus Aurelius, 161 to 180 AD. He tortured and beheaded Christians. He killed Justin Martyr. Next to him was Septimus Severus. In 200 to 211 AD, he burned, crucified, and beheaded Christians, and he killed Irenaeus. These are all famous Christians of the early faith. After him was Maximinius, 235 to 237 AD, he executed Christians. After him was Decius, 250 to 253 AD, he tried to wipe out Christianity, he killed Alexander of Jerusalem. After him was Valerian, 257 to 260 AD, tried to wipe out Christianity too, executed the Bishop of Carthage. After him was Aurelian, 270 to 275 AD, persecuted Christians any way he could. And the 10th one was Diocletian, 303 to 312 AD. He burned the scriptures, he destroyed churches, he required everyone to sacrifice to Roman gods. So it's probably a veiled reference to the 10 worst of the Roman emperors. And he adds there, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life.
0: Is
1: Jump in you find the your towards your new life. Thanks for listening today to Cornerstone Connection. This book of revelation that you've been studying with Pastor Gary is one that many have studied and analyzed, and tried and tried again to pinpoint on a timeline. When will Jesus come? When will these and time's events take place? Have they already begun? There are many questions we don't have the answers to, and we won't until they happen. But there are some truths that we can hold on to. These events will happen. Jesus is returning, and he will defeat Satan once and for all. And all those who have made Jesus Lord in their life will be with him for eternity. What a wonderful time that will be. So where does that leave us? It's important to know what's coming so that you can prepare now and trust Jesus for what we don't know. We must give our lives to the Lord, and we need to give others the opportunity to do the same. We're so glad you tuned in for today's study in Revelation. If you'd like to explore more teachings from God's Word that Pastor Gary has shared, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. There you'll also learn more about the church behind this ministry, Cornerstone Chapel. Come visit us if you're in the area. All the information you need is at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Join us next time for more here on Cornerstone Connection.
0: They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know you're not alone